Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, your source for breaking news, business trends, and economic forecasts here and abroad that impact one-third of America's economy. And now your hosts, Lou Weiss and Tim Grady. And this is Tim Grady, and I am uh, filling in today for Lou Weiss, who normally joins me. Uh, He is out on hiatus, so I'm going to be speaking with Scott Ellison, who is the CEO and co-founder of East-West Manufacturing, which is a particularly interesting Atlanta-based global contract manufacturing company, and we're going to kind of do a little deep dive on what East-West Manufacturing does, and then we're going to start looking at some trends in the global supply chain and um, some nearshoring opportunities that are really quite interesting, a name of a country that you may not have thought of or heard of recently. So, Scott, welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. I appreciate you being here since I'm in the Atlanta area and you're in the Atlanta area. We're, uh, we could have almost gotten together and done this over lunch. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> It'd be a beautiful day for it. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Um, Scott, give our listeners an idea of what East-West Manufacturing does. Sure. Uh, I mean, I like to think of us as a, a product realization company in that we uh, we work with both large and small companies to uh, design their products for them, uh, manufacture them in either onshore, nearshore, or offshore facilities. And then we will uh, also help them with distribution, where we'll carry their products in, in our facilities, in our warehouses, and sell directly to their customers or to their facilities you know, weekly, daily, monthly, as needed. Oh, interesting. So you actually help them with warehousing the products so they don't have to worry about that particular piece That's of the right. puzzle. Right. We'd, we'd much rather our customers spend their time uh, marketing and selling their products and uh, and you know inventing and and uh, developing new products for their markets, and then we want to be their partner that helps them uh, design it, make it, and ship it. Very interesting model. That that's quite different, and um, actually rather clever. I'm glad to hear about it. And I'm sure yeah, we we like to think of it as more than just a contract manufacturing service. It's it's more of a full product development service and. Uh, you know, manufacturing uh, and distribution service as well. Yeah, the inventory and fulfillment piece is uh, critical. That can really trip you up in manufacturing. Yeah, especially with, you know, long supply chains when you're bringing in products from, you know, Asia. Uh, you know, a lot of our customers aren't particularly good at, at managing around lead times, particularly things like Chinese New Year and Tet holidays and and uh, we've done this long enough, or we'd much rather manage that for them so they don't have to worry about it. Well, that's a very good point. Yeah, that is uh, very challenging, particularly in this current environment of the trade war and quotas and sure. what country you might be getting supply from. So what's really happening in the supply chain, the global supply chain, Scott, with the, with the trade war heating up? Are people scrambling for suppliers, or what's going on? Yeah, so uh, we've got a pretty big um, supply chain throughout China. I think we, at last count, we have about 250 factories in China uh, making products for us. Uh, we do own some of our own facilities in China as well. So when the tariffs hit, of course, that was a pretty big deal. In fact, uh, since we're in the industrial space, and many of the products are used in things like robots and uh, high-tech uh, industry 
you know, connected devices, IoT devices, medical devices, we were impacted on list one. The majority of, I think, 80% of our products were hit on list one. And um, so it was really a, a blend of things that's happened. Uh, in, in some cases, we were able to mitigate uh, tariffs by, uh, you know, let's say we had a product that was being shipped in the U.S. and then routed down to Mexico for assembly and then, uh, and then later again shipped back up to the U.S. as a, as a finished good. Uh, right. We, you know, the, the way to mitigate that is what we just shipped all the parts from China straight into Mexico, so they didn't have to get imported into the U.S. and they could achieve a change of origin in Mexico and then ship it up into to the U.S. Uh, and, and 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 no tariff impact on that. Uh, another um, thing we were able to do is uh, we do own a, a pretty big operation in Vietnam. Uh, that's I would call a case build operation. So it's electronics, plastics, uh, some metal processing. And so where it made sense, we were able to transition some of our products down to uh, down to Vietnam. And, and normally it was, we'd leave a lot of the component manufacturing in China, just the supply chain in China is so broad uh, that we it would be very hard to displace that. And so, but, but the assembly uh, of products is, is not as difficult. So we moved the final assembly of many things into our Vietnam facility, and and it was enough to change origin into Vietnam, and uh, and there again we could ship through Vietnam into the U.S. and mitigate tariffs that way. Uh, we also do have a, a nearshore operation in uh, Costa Rica, and uh, same thing there. Costa Rica has a free a free trade agreement uh, with China, so there's no tariffs there or duties. And then, as you know, uh, Costa Rica has a free trade agreement with the U.S. through CAFTA. And, and uh, so that route of shipping components into Costa Rica, assembling, processing, and then uh, shipping the finished good up into the U.S. is uh, is is uh, duty-free, tariff-free uh, entirely. But you know, there's a lot of work uh, required to do these things. And, right. uh, and 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 the one thing that you know is kind of universal that I'm seeing is, um, you know, many many of the products that we make in China today have really significant capital investment behind it. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of um, some, you know, we do some high pressure die casting as an example in the, the average machine. These are, these are large machines, uh, 4,000 ton high pressure die cast machine. I think those machines cost about $5 million a piece. Um, wow. And, and, and there's, there's, there's been no, uh, in, Nobody's been willing to invest significant amount of capital uh, to lo relocate manufacturing to regions uh, when a tariff may disappear tomorrow, and all that deployment of capital could be a, a wasted investment. Ah, uh -huh. right. So well, yeah, yeah. And so so where it's easy, it's you know it really comes down to you know in manufacturing, it's you know you're thinking long term. It's it's about return on invested capital, and you want to make sure that you're uh, not investing capital, for example, in setting up a manufacturing plant in the U.S. Uh, when you know the tariff could go away tomorrow, and uh, and suddenly you're no longer competitive. Well, it's a very interesting point, Scott. One of the questions that we've been asking people is, what is the impact of tariffs on, for instance, the global supply chain? And that's an interesting point. Have you seen investment in plants in China then slowing significantly? While this trade war, uh, you know, is going I have. Out? Yeah, what well, what I've seen. So you know, we've got 
we operate, I guess, out of six or seven countries. And when we look at a product, we typically think, uh, you know, where is the best place to, man to manufacture this? And, um, and that could be onshore, it could be nearshore, it could be offshore, all those are things we consider. And there's, and there's a lot of variables, you know, it's, it's lead times, it's uh, volumes, it's, uh, you know, uh, complexity, you know, taxes, uh, labor content. I mean, there's just a whole laundry list of things to consider when making those decisions. And, and I can say, you know, with it, with the tariff war being, you know, in place, uh, you know, we're not placing as many new products in China as we were, you know, pre-tariffs. Um, but that said, we're, what we're, we, we are doing is we're buying more components from China and shipping them to our other facilities for assembly uh, to, to, to help mitigate tariffs. So we're moving, right. we're moving products into other regions, you know, India is, as well. Uh, we've not transferred a lot of, I wouldn't say we transferred a lot of revenue out of China. Uh, it's been more of just shifting things around. Okay. How long has East West been working in China? Uh, well, East West started in 2001, and, uh, and and we started in China. You know, I started working in China in 1993, um, and okay. uh, so, so so pretty early doing electronics uh, over there, and uh, and then we expanded into Vietnam. Uh, we started East West 2001 as kind of a, a spinoff of a larger company. Uh, and and expanded in Vietnam in 2003, uh, expanded into uh, India in, in in late 2000, probably 2011, 2012. Interesting, Scott. One of the things that we hear about uh, in sometimes the nightly news uh, in a snippet, uh, or you might read in an article in brief, is that the consumer is now demanding faster, better, even more customized products to them specifically does mm -hmm. east west help uh, mitigate that for companies who are looking at that and going oh wow we're going to achieve this one <laughs> yeah yes um i mean the customers are definitely becoming more demanding about lead times and and uh and flexibility of supply chain uh, and, and the reality, the biggest constraint we have is, you know, these are lower cost operations are, you know, they're still on the other side of the world and, uh, and lead times by container are still in the, you know, best case 30 days, but more closer to 40 day averages. And, and there's just, there's just no way around that, you know, air freight is always an option, but that comes at a pretty significant expense. And, you know, lead times on electronic components in, in our space have um, been pushed out quite a bit over the years. Uh, you know, it, it, we had a pretty uh, terrible situation last year with allocation on electronics, which pushed out lead times to as much as, um, you know, eight to nine months. Uh, so being having a flexible supply chain when lead times are that long can be really difficult. And it forces you to, you know, to, to bring in excess inventory and, uh, you know, safety stocks uh, much higher than you would normally have to, to uh, so you can react faster. But you know that's one of the reasons we've acquired uh, we acquired two factories in the U.S. Uh, in the last 12 months, and uh, we intend to acquire several more uh, in the U.S. Uh, and, and because that gives us the ability to be more responsive to customers 
uh, where that's where that's needed, and um, and and it's always a kind of a, a a balance, you know. With that flexibility comes cost, and some customers are willing to pay for that. And uh, and, and if, if if some customers prefer uh, you know to, to to drive costs out and move to lower cost locations, well then you're gonna you're gonna have to give up some flexibility and lead time to accommodate that as well. So there's right. but we want to be able to offer both of those as a solution. It's interesting, Scott, that most of the big corporations, you know, we, we think of them you know, manufacturing either in the U.S. or in nearshore Mexico. But in reality, they're multinational. They shop all over the world. They're bright folks, yeah. and they know how to expand their supply chain. But what does the little guy do? I understand that East-West can help the, the small and mid-sized enterprises. Yeah, well, that's one of the – synergies that we saw right away when we were looking at domestic we we've been helping domestic manufacturers for years I and mean, that's really one of the key reasons we got we started east west and that we thought we could bring a global supply chain to our domestic customers here to help them become more competitive uh and uh and, and, and grow and we saw it over and over again where our customers in the u.s were were using us to drive cost out of their you know, material spend, and they were winning business and growing. And so we said, "Well, geez, that's that's great, um, but what if we uh, what if we owned some of these factories in the U.S. so we could do that ourselves and make them more competitive, help them grow, but then also be there uh, to to um, support them with you know um, engineering uh, and and in, in those cases where the product uh, the volumes grow beyond." what those domestic factories can support, well, then we're going to have other locations that we could, we could drive that manufacturing to as needed, like Costa Rica or Vietnam to help drive costs down. And, and, and typically if you look at the life cycle of a product, you know, everything kind of starts off typically at a relatively small volume. And then, and then if they're successful, it grows and grows as, as they get market share. And then it gets more price sensitive and the volumes get higher and maybe competition comes into play. So you have to figure out how to continue to drive cost out. Speed is typically much more important at the onset of a product, getting it out, uh, you know, incubating it, getting it off the ground, getting it to market. And we find we can do that a lot faster with our domestic facilities. But then, you know, as, as the product evolves and, and it needs to be driven to lower cost regions, then, then we can support that through our other operations. So I, I think it's really, it's not an or, it's not we make it onshore or offshore. I think it's kind of an all of the above. Great. Uh, Scott, I know that uh, I want to give our listeners an idea of what kind of products they should come to you for. And those uh, who listen to this, it's at uh, www.ewmfg.com is the website for East West Manufacturing. But what kind of product would I come to you to help me engineer and manufacture, Scott? Yeah, the, the, there's we have four different divisions. Um, the, the first one is uh, we call it connected devices. We, we like to say, you know, in the world of IoT, which you, you, you know, Internet of Things, we, we want to be the T. Uh, so we want when people have an idea of you know creating a connected device that does, you know, monitoring or sensing or you know some kind of uh, activity, then, then we, we, we would love to manufacture that. We've gotten pretty good at, um, you know, cellular and Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and, you know, all these different things that you can use to transition, trans, 
to capture and transfer information in the cloud. Um, mm -hmm. The other area I would say would be uh, industrial automation, uh, which would include robotics. Uh, we've been fortunate to be uh, involved in several robotics, uh, large-scale robotics projects uh, across the world. Uh, you know, some of them uh, in, in the distribution arena for for some of the larger players out there. And there's just a lot. You know, when when, when there's a lot of great solutions now with robotics. And typically, what happens is is that you know when they develop the first uh, you know, several units, the costs tend to be very high. And then it becomes, well, in order for us to achieve our ROIs on this and to get scale, we have to, we have to go to a global supply chain. And, and that's where we can really, really do a, a good job driving down costs considerably across all kinds of you know, plastics, metals, electronics, to get those robotic solutions into a point where you can really recognize the, um, the, the value and return that you would you would hope for. Um, the other area would be uh, engineered products um, for us, which is kind of a catch-all for for uh, um, machine parts and plastics and so forth that are largely used in industrial applications. And then and then lastly uh, would be our medical group, where we're doing um, medical uh, components and assemblies uh, for a variety of you know applications in that area. So those are the four. Uh, medical is uh, probably our smallest, but growing the fastest, and then our, our largest. Um, and I forgot to mention that we do quite a bit of uh, motors, electrical motors. Uh, mm -hmm. We own a motor factory in China. Uh, we do make motors in Vietnam as well. And we really like motors that are used in assemblies. Uh, you know, and because we can, we can do all, we can design and manufacture and pull all of that together into one unit. Okay. Uh, Scott, I know that another trend that is going through really kind of society at the moment, and East-West Manufacturing has more than 2,000 global employees, is to right. develop products that are smarter, cleaner, safer. Uh, do you, and I know that we, we in the U.S. at least think that, you know, that's kind of our thing, particularly with the millennials, that they want a greener environment and greener products. But do you find that a consistent theme across all of your employees? Well, it's a, you know, there, there, there's been an evolution of this. Um, the, you know, I, I think it was, you know, I've seen, I've traveled enough throughout the world and I've seen how uh, the industrialization of countries uh, like China and, and India, but what impact that's had on their environment. And I think I was I was reading an, an article a while back from Thomas Friedman, and um, he was talking about carbon footprint and uh, of the U.S. And he said, well, you know, if China uh, were to achieve the same car in India, for that matter, were to see the same carbon footprint as what the us from, from the U.S. have had been able to enjoy for the last you know, 50 years, we're, we're going to need another planet. Uh, <laughs> and you just can't. It, it's, <laughs> It's just not sustainable, and and I think he's absolutely right. Uh, you, you just what we you know, we all want the same things in terms of quality of life, and um, you know we want refrigerators and we want cars and you know TV sets and you know with in a in a climate controlled house and and uh, and you see that now in China and India and and, and uh, I, I they're going to get there one way or the other, but I believe that for us to do it in a way that's sustainable. It has to be done um, through technology, and so 
early in the days of East West, we were we weren't very discerning about the types of products that we um, would would want to manufacture. I mean, we we liked industrial sector and we liked long life cycles. But as we've gotten bigger now and uh, and, and more knowledgeable, I, I've become more passionate about wanting to make products that we think make the world a better place. And um, and we can be more selective about that because I just I really think it's important, and I think as a company. Uh, we can make a difference by bringing products to life that we think kind of fits that profile of, you know, cleaner, safer, smarter, healthier. Mm-hmm. No, I think it's a great, great goal. And I'm glad that that's something that you're pursuing both personally and professionally. Uh, I think it uh, is something that is really important for the planet. As I tell my kids, your job is to clean up the mess we made. Yeah, because you know, our generation and, and I'm uh, you know, one of the gray hairs, that generation, the greatest generation has made quite a mess of, uh, of our poor planet. Yeah, and we haven't, have you know, there's a lot of great solutions out there. You know, I think of, you know, the electric motors that we manufacture, it's gone through, it's going through very much the same evolution as, as lighting has. You know, we, we went from incandescent, which is essentially a, a toaster. Uh, to mm-hmm. to fluorescent to now LED, which is much more efficient. Well, motors are you know motors consume something like sixty or seventy percent of the energy in in, in the U.S. Uh, AC motors. You, you wouldn't believe if you if you went around your house and added up all the electric motors you have in your refrigerators and your dishwashers and your washing machines and your air. You know, it's, it's just it, there's a lot of them and. Um, and so the motors now, you know, in a lot of applications, were maybe 15 or 20 percent efficient. You know, horrible. The rest is generating heat. And uh, you think in refrigeration applications or HVAC applications, you're trying to cool something. You, you know, having a, essentially a toaster oven in a, in a cooling application is, is really not a good idea. And so uh, with motors now, they've come up with um, what they call them electronically commutated motors, EC motors, which are now have efficiency ratings that are in the 90% range, uh, which is which is fantastic. And so these things run cool, and they use just a fraction of the energy. Uh, but when they came out, the the costs were considerably higher than the less efficient motors. And so nobody could justify them. They were, you know, five times the price. And so when you were buying a $10 motor before, you're not going to buy a $50 motor to replace it because the ROIs never make sense. And so. Mm-hmm. You know, by introducing global manufacturing, uh, we were able to, uh, you know, in Moore's law, uh, we were able to drive down the cost of these smart motors in some applications to, to twelve to fifteen dollars, where the you know the, the motor we're replacing is ten dollars, and so it, it becomes a no-brainer. And the and the ROIs on these return on investment, you get it inside of a year, uh, th- then it just kind of snowballs. Everybody wants to just change over their technologies. To this, and so this is really where a company like ours can can you know help introduce new technologies that are impactful because we can get the cost down to a point where it can it can be justified. Well, that's interesting about motors because I was going to ask you in your uh, years of experience in putting East West together and handling products for companies, what are some of the unique ones that have come your way without giving away somebody's secret sauce? And clearly, uh, electric motors is one that you've come across that you've made quite efficient. 
Uh, are there other, in, uh, you know, one other intriguing one out there that you found particularly fascinating? We've we've got um, well, you know, most of the products, ninety five percent, I think, of the products we make belong to our customers. It's their IP. Uh, mm-hmm. We work. We'll we'll assist on design and um, you know do the modeling and the fluid, uh, the the air fluid uh, modeling, et cetera. Um, but ultimately, it's their product, and and um, and it, but we've had we've been very fortunate that a lot of the products that we've been able to play to to, to get involved with uh, are great. And so w- one of my favorite products is for a company uh, called Wahoo Fitness, and uh, and they've come up with a product which is it's an exercise trainer that you for your bike that goes in your in your house and. Um, and their whole model is to make it uh, feel like your, your indoor biking experience is like you're biking outside. And so the way they've done this, it, it's pretty, it's pretty uh, neat where you can now hook up the trainer to a, an app on your computer or on your phone. And uh, like in my case, I have a setup in my basement and I can pull up a high definition video of most, uh, many places in the world, like let's say Mallorca, and I can bike in high def through Mallorca, and the bike that I'm on experiences the same. It feels like I'm outside, so when I'm going up hills or down hills, it's, I'm getting the same reaction. I've actually got a blower that East West is uh, that manufactures for Wahoo, where the air blows on you uh, at, based on the same speed that you're traveling. Uh, so now <laughs> I can I can bike around I can bike around the world. Uh, with that, I, like if I wanted to do the Tour de France, I can I can do it in my basement, and and there's other apps out there where I can uh, where we can bike to. So you could be in your basement and I could be in mine, and we could be biking uh, virtually uh, with one another, and I could be racing you and drafting you, and and it's, it's fantastic, really. And and uh, we're not far from being able to make that into a I think a virtual environment where you could put on your virtual goggles and. You know, explore areas uh, around the world without ever having to go there. You know, in, in, in uh, reality. So that's you know that's just another example of a great a great technology that we've been able to get involved in. Um, but I, I'll give you one more um, that we're working on. Uh, a company that um, they've invented a um, a device that you know if you look at the heater tanks and propane tanks uh, out there. Most of them just have a dial gauge on them. They're not smart, and they've been around for a long time, particularly in the north. And so when you're heating your house, somebody has to, to monitor that, and, and usually there's no easy way to do it. You either have to go there and look at it visually, or, or the people that are responsible for keeping it full have to keep it topped off on a more frequent basis. And so this company's invented a gauge that can, uh, that can digitize the, the gauge that's on the propane tank today uh, it turns that into a, a, a cellular signal, uh, so you can now uh, put it on your tank, and it can be monitored real time. Uh, and now I can monitor large, and it goes in the cloud, and so I can real time monitor large uh, fleets of tanks at one time, and get really smart about um, how I'm keeping them full. Uh, as a, you know, if I'm the person that's responsible for keeping, for, for uh, you know, making sure that nobody runs out of fuel. I can I can be smart about how I'm routing my trucks and everything to keep those tanks full, and then also I can ensure that nobody runs out anymore because I know exactly mm-hmm. where they are. So uh, g- great idea, 
and and something that we've been able to really help them get those down to a, a cost point that's more uh, favorable and uh, where they can get much more scale. So if one of our listeners has a great idea for a product, uh, and we should really get a hold of Scott at East West Manufacturing uh, and run it by that those folks. I'm sure they've got a number of really creative folks that can help you along. Scott, we appreciate you coming on Manufacturing Talk Radio, not just to share your story, but really to uh, share with our audience what can be done. That's a real pivot point for the rest of the world. It's I tell my kids, we watched Star Trek and went, ooh, cool TV show. They watch Star <laughs> Trek and go, huh, I bet I can make that. Yeah, and they exactly. set about doing it. <laughs> Scott, thanks for being right. with us. Great talking to you, Tim. Really appreciate it. We've been talking with Scott Ellison, who is the CEO and co-founder of East West Manufacturing. You really should look them up at www.ewmfg.com. And check out their website and get a hold of them if you've got an idea for a product or you've got a prototype and you want to take it down the road a little further faster. I think East West Manufacturing can help you. As always, we will post additional information about this episode at mfgtalkradio.com where you can find all of our shows, along with links to our other shows such as Women in Manufacturing, which is a great uh, content of work that you should check out those uh, interviews if you're looking to move your career forward. And and uh, that's kind of the uh, flip side to the good old boys network. We've got some brilliant people who have shared on that uh, series of podcasts. So please join us there. But again, thank you for listening to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.